Yes, the Islanders have tight cap restraints in that they, they don't have any cap space. And, and I think he would be a wonderful fit for the Islanders. I really do. You know, he could even slot in on that third line. And It's hard being a Newsday writer and having access to Gary Bettman and not having to ask him arena questions like we've been asking him for the last 20 years. My brain shut off there. Newsday presents the Island Ice Podcast with Andrew Gross. And welcome to Island Ice, Newsday's New York Islanders podcast, episode 74, and hi, I'm your host, Andrew Gross of Newsday. You can find me on Twitter, as always, at agrossnewsday, and you can also connect with me via Newsday Islanders text, which is uh, your best way to communicate one-on-one with me and any uh, Newsday staffer covering the Islanders. You can text 631-303-3766. That's 631-303-3766. Or go to newsday.com backslash Isles text to start your 14-day trial subscription. And on this uh, episode, we'll be talking very shortly with my Newsday teammate, Neil Best, uh, about a few different subjects, namely the fact that fans are going back into Nassau Coliseum and also that the NHL has a new national uh, TV deal getting back on ESPN and what that might mean for the league and what that might mean for the Islanders. And also after that, we'll be answering uh, some of your questions in the Andrews Answers segment. Um, And as we speak, the Islanders, as I mentioned, are on the eve of allowing fans back into Nassau Coliseum for the first time, uh, Thursday, March 11th, against the New Jersey Devils. 1,000 Northwell Health Frontline workers will be guests of the Islanders, and it's a really a nice gesture on the organization's part. 1,000 frontline workers who, you know, have worked and sacrificed through this COVID-19 pandemic. So them and uh, some family members will be guests of the Islanders and in a show of appreciation for everything they've had to go through. Uh, It's been a year now, right? You know, March 12th, and we'll talk about that with Neil too. March 12th, uh, 2020, the year the the world essentially shut down. Certainly the NHL did. Um, As fans are coming back into the Coliseum, and season ticket subscribers will be back in for the next home game, which is March 18th against the Philadelphia Flyers, 10% of capacity, so you're looking at a number, and I haven't gotten the final total yet from the Islanders as to how many tickets per game are being made available, but you're looking in the uh, 1,300 to 1,400 range, 10% of capacity at uh, Nassau Coliseum. So fans coming back in, that should be a lot of fun. It will certainly bring some atmosphere into the old barn and, uh, you know, uh, last season there uh, with UBS Arena targeted to open in November and it'll be good for the fans to get, you know, a little bit of a last go-round even in this kind of, you know, wacky pandemic world where the stands are, you know, only at 10% of capacity. It's good that some people will be in there. Uh, Islanders will welcome back the fans certainly on on a on a good roll. They're the best of the season. They've won six straight after a 2-1 shootout win 
over the Bruins on Tuesday night. That leaves them, as I said, with six straight wins. They're on an 8-0-1 streak. That's their longest point streak since going 15-0-2 last season. Um, they're 11-0-2 at the Coliseum without fans. And uh, you'd have to think having fans in the stands will, will only give them more of a, a home ice advantage, or at least that would be... Uh, the hope for sure. They conclude this five-game homestand, as I mentioned, against the Devils on Thursday night. That's the start of three straight games as they go back-to-back in New Jersey on Saturday and Sunday. Um, we're, we're getting to within a month of the NHL trading deadline on April 12th, and and we'll we'll also get into some of the Islanders' needs in a little bit. You know, I, I personally, I, I just want to send out my congratulations to... Uh, Barry Trotz, who became the third coach in NHL history to reach 1,700 games on Tuesday night. And, uh, you know, it's such an incredible number. I remember asking Barry, uh, I think it might have been his first season um, with the Islanders. We were someplace in Canada, or I forget somewhere, just walking along in a corridor. And I got him one-on-one, and I, I brought up the idea that, you know, he had he was forging a uh, Hall of Fame career. And, and I do think Barry Trotz will be in the Hall of Fame when all is said and done. He certainly deserves to be there. Uh, you know, he's some in some rarefied air amongst coaches. Only Scotty Bowman and, and Joel Quenville have both more games and more wins than Barry Trotz. So, you know, I, I certainly expect Joel Quenville to get into the Hall of Fame, and Scotty Bowman's there already. So, I absolutely expect Barry Trotz to be in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, I asked him about that, and, uh, you know, he couldn't have been more uncomfortable with the question and, and really just didn't want to think about it. So, but anyway, listen, my my congratulations to Barry, as I said. And, uh, you know, I don't know if he's got another 1,700 in him. He's been at this since 1998. Um, he started at age 36 in the NHL, which is pretty good. So I don't know if he's got another 1,700, but I, I know Barry's got a lot more games in him, uh, a, a lot more games. He's certainly one of, the, one of the finest coaches this league has seen. And, uh, you know, a Tuesday shootout win over the Bruins, uh, the, the Islanders had entered 0-4 in games that went past three periods. They'd lost three times in overtime, twice to the Flyers, and and once to the Penguins in overtime, and also they lost in a shootout to Penguins, to the Penguins. And uh, Trotz, when asked after Tuesday's game, did did have an interesting take in his post-game comments about, uh, you know, their, their inability to to win in, win in overtime or shootouts this season. And, and Trotz was kind of, you know, had the theory that maybe some teams have figured out the Islanders' strategy in overtime. They've caught up to him. And, you know, a lot of that is getting the puck to Matthew Barzell uh, in a three-on-three and let, letting Matthew Barzell, you know, you, you see the, those drop passes to Matthew Barzell, either at the Islanders' blue line or, or actually the drop passes going into the Islanders' zone and, and letting Matt get up a full head of steam to get up ice. And, uh, you know, the teams of, uh, are not giving Barzy as much, you know, time and space, even at three and three, three on three in the overtime. So uh, Trotz, you know, might have to go back to the drawing board a little bit to adjust to the adjustments. Um, you know, I, I, I don't even 
have to talk about how crucial getting two points instead of one point once you get past the third period can be uh, when it comes to playoff positioning. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure as as I, you know, pumped up Barry earlier for his 1,700 games, I'm sure Barry uh, will be looking at the tapes and has been looking at the tapes and is uh, formulating new ideas. But uh, I, I do want to get right to uh, Neil Best. We have a, a bunch of topics to talk to with him. So we'll be back with Neil right after this message. Get the latest on the New York Islanders when you sign up to receive text alerts all season long. Newsday's Andrew Gross will text you real-time analysis and behind-the-scenes reporting for $4.99 a month. Go to newsday.com slash text to get started or text 631-303-3766. That's 631-303-3766 or online at newsday.com slash text. I'm thrilled to welcome back to the Island Ice podcast our good friend, my uh, Newsday teammate, hopefully... uh, get to play a little softball with him at some point this summer. Uh, Neil Best. Neil, good to uh, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, yeah, I must be a near playoff time if I'm back in the mix. So the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. season's uh, almost half over, right? Or roughly? Over. Yep. Yep. They, they play game, uh, was it uh, 26 tomorrow? Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Uh, 26. Uh, my math is so awful. I can... Tell you in one second. Yeah, they nope. They're playing game twenty-seven. Oh, so, so it is yeah, all staff. Okay, yeah, twenty-seven, and then game twenty-eight gets them to the midway point. So yeah, and game twenty-seven will be special because uh, the Islanders will be hosting one thousand Northwell Health uh, frontline workers, and it's the start of fans coming back into Nassau Coliseum. Uh, you got the uh, the Northwell Health frontline workers as guests of the Islanders against the Devils on Thursday. And then the following week, March 18th, uh, that's when season ticket subscribers can be back in the building, starting off at 10% capacity. So you're talking at a number somewhere between 1,300 and 1,400 season ticket holders. And the Islanders just announcing, um, as I set up to talk to Neil, that the first seven home games at Nassau Coliseum that are open to the fans have been sold out already. So uh, that was to be expected with the limited capacity. But Neil, just, you know, you've been in that building empty. You've been in that building full. (laughs) Um, What do you expect the fans add when they come back in? And, you know, even at 13 to 1400, you know, what's that going to do for the atmosphere and, and what's been kind of an eerily quiet Coliseum so far? Yeah, I think it'll be great. I mean, I have not yet been in one of these partially filled stadiums in any of the sports, but from everything that we've heard all across all the different sports that you'd be surprised what a difference it makes, even having just those few thousand people. You know, we saw it with the Bills fans when there were whatever that was, 6,000. You know, maybe it's just because we're so starved for fans at this point, but I do think it'll make a difference. And I think it's great. And uh, it, particularly in this case, I think I wrote a column on the for the home opener saying it was something about b- because it's the Coliseum, because it's the last season at the Coliseum, it was like extra sad not having fans compared to at the Garden or, you know, wherever else. Um, so the idea that they could have gone through this whole season with no fans there, which at one point it looked that way, that, that would have been really hard to swallow. So at least, 
you know, whoever's in that building for the next two, three, four months can kind of represent those who aren't there and, uh, you know, send out the Coliseum properly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I was at the Prudential Center uh, in Newark, New Jersey, when the Islanders played the Devils on March 2nd. And that was the first, uh, the, the first game the Devils had at the Rock where, where fans were in. And uh, they, they did announce a sellout that day. It was, I think, uh, 1,800 people were in the building right around there. Um, and you and you did notice it. You, you know, it, it's it, it's surprising. Even though everyone was scattered around, and you know, I was surprised with how many Islanders jerseys I actually did see in the stands. Considering they were limited tickets, you would have thought that the Devils fans would have been able to, you know, fill the seats there. But um, you know, it, you. It's very stark at the beginning when you go from this pumped-in fake crowd noise to to the real thing. It, it, it's an emotional jolt, and I think a needed emotional jolt. Yeah, no, and I think that whether it's for us or for the players, coaches, you know, I do think it's also kind of a yeah. Regardless of what the volume level is, it's 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 that feeling of normalcy where when you know we've been in these empty stadiums and you're you're kind of like you know, it's on television and that's why we're doing it. But it's also just like, why are we here? This is just really weird. There's these professional athletes out there playing in front of nobody. Um, so yeah, even if it's just 2000 people, it just philosophically sort of seems normal or, you know. <laughs> now you were, you were in an empty MetLife stadium for both Jet and Giant games, right? Yeah. Um, well, you, I think maybe just Jets, but I was definitely in an empty MetLife Stadium. Okay. And were you in uh, an empty Yankee or City Field? It wasn't an empty one of them. I mean, uh, you know, the, the last 60 years are kind of a blur at this point. But yes, I yes, I was in both of those situations. I've not been to a basketball game in an empty arena, but. All right. And, and I, I mean, I, I, just, I, I think it's weirder in the indoor sports than the outdoor sports, uh, just because you know, it's a more intimate experience is going to hockey or basketball games than baseball and football. So uh, on television, on television, baseball is the worst only because the empty seats are in more camera angles. Yeah. Uh, so I, th I think baseball suffers the most on television, but in person, I think the indoor sports suffer more. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you because we sat socially distanced at the same media table for the Islanders uh, home opener way back on what was that January 18th, I believe. And, uh, you know, that was my first experience, you know, in a, other than at Belmont racetrack for the Belmont Stakes, which Right. You talk about a cavernous grandstand. <laughs> I mean, yeah. a yeah. place that can hold 125,000 people, you know, yeah. and, and, and you're hearing crickets. That was weird. But no, I, I agree, you know, at the Coliseum without anyone in there, you know, I, I, I keep describing it this way as, as eerie. You know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's very eerie to be sitting there and hearing the players' conversations with each other on the ice. Yeah, and uh, I did uh, do the, I guess, the Rangers home opener also. So, yeah, I have a dad, the garden to compare it to. And, yeah, again, it, it's there's no question the eeriness factor I felt more at hockey games than football or baseball. Because, I mean, let's face it, football's stadiums have been a TV studio for decades anyway. Um, and base, baseball, again, baseball is really weird uh, in person. Uh, less weird in person than on TV with no fans. 
but yeah, eerie is the word. And and the Coliseum just it was like an extra level of weirdness just because of the reputation, obviously, of that building being intimate and loud and all the energy. So it was even to me, it was even worse than the garden. And, and you know, and it's not just inside the Coliseum, because as you know, I mean, as everyone knows, on, on a good Islanders day, you've got a packed parking lot with people, you know, tailgating before a game. It, it's kind of a unique experience. You know, there, there, there are not a lot of NHL arenas around, you know, that, that really get that tailgating experience like the Coliseum does. And yeah. that, that's been missing as well. Not a lot of tailgating on 33rd Street. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of bars packed, but... That's true, that's true. But, you know, I, I hope, of course, it's going to be... Well, I mean, obviously, for society's sake, I'm, I'm hoping that by the time the Islanders win, or if they win a round or two of the playoffs, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe the place is half full. Maybe it's three quarters full. Maybe it's all full. I don't know. But let's hope that this is the first step in that kind of direction. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we talk about a return to normalcy. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone has a real good grasp of what normal is going to be once we do get back to whatever we think normal is going to be. But how much does this push the meter for you? You know, just even having 1300 people in the Coliseum to, to, to feeling like, you know, Hey, we're on our way here. I mean, we've all been at, you know, whether it's a bad team or it's late in a blowout game, we have all been at games where only 10% of the seats are full. So it is going to seem, <laughs> You know, it is going to seem like something we have seen before, but yeah, the more the most important thing is it just being this another symbol of a step in the right direction to me. I mean, that's you know, obviously, thirteen hundred fans is not a sustainable business model, but but it's 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 just encouraging for everyone and those people who are in there. Uh, you know, hopefully they'll feel it's a special. Well, first of all, the Northwell Health people—they're being honored basically, so they should feel special on Thursday night. But then, when the regular paying customers come in, I mean, like I said earlier, to me they're almost like sort of representing all their fellow fans who can't be there. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a tremendous job by the Islanders starting off with. You know, I know you know Northwell Health is the corporate sponsor, you know, and there is a partnership with the Islanders, but that does not diminish at all, you know, the work that these frontline, you know, people and, and, and everything they've had to endure, you know, through this year of the pandemic. So but the fact that they happen to be a sponsor, yeah, obviously they're a sponsor and they're kind of honoring their partner in addition to honoring the workers. But in this case, yeah, you, you can't really argue against that. No. Uh, being, being a good, uh, you know, I used the word gesture. I was doing an interview with one of the nurses the other day. And then I was like, you know, gesture is not even really an adequate word. It's a, you know, it's an yeah. honor. In my household growing up, my mom would have said the Islanders are being menches about it. So yeah. <laughs> I also wanted to segue from that into the fact that you, you've just published a story on newsday.com backslash sports about a year of the pandemic, right? You know, it, it was, you know, we're talking on March 10th and the Islanders and the NHL, you know, shut down on March 12th. The NBA was on March 11th. This is basically a year when things went from what we knew into this new reality. And what, what, what did you find and, you know, in the ways you were reminiscing about what we've been through and, and talking to people, what did you find writing this, this one year anniversary story? 
Well, I knew that everybody in media would be doing this this week, understandably. So I wanted to try to localize it and focus primarily on the St. John's Creighton game being, you know, essentially really being the last major sports event because it stopped at halftime um, on the next day. So that, you know, that was our, you know, my way of kind of making it a local story. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things everybody kind of remembers what they were doing and thinking for those 24 hours. And I think the number one thing that people are amazed at looking back, just like they were at the time, so fast it all happened. It's just incredible how within 24 hours, we went from Rudy Gobert testing positive to the NCAA tournament being canceled, NHL canceled, everything canceled. Like it was, the speed was incredible. Yeah. Do I have 30 seconds to tell a non-Islander story about my experience that night? Oh, absolutely. March 11th, you know, the Rudy Gobert day. Um, I was covering a, uh, I won't, I'll spare you the details, but it was a story involving a, a Fox Sports' Jay Glazer. He has this uh, organization that helps veterans in need, basically. They're having this event at this hot, steamy, crowded Midtown Manhattan MMA gym. And I, my wife, who's, a, you know, I've been friends with Jay for a long time. She says, all right, you can go to this thing, but don't let Jay hug you. <laughs> so, of course, the second I walk in the gym, Jay walks up, fair hug. Yeah. And, and I, I, I'm not a big warrior when it comes to these types of things, but that was not the right venue to be in that yeah. at all. All right, I'm sorry. Go ahead, back no, up. No, no, I mean, because <laughs> March 11th, uh, the Islanders played a game in Vancouver on March 10th, which turned out to be their last game before the pause. And then, uh, you know, they, they move on in Calgary and they have a, a practice day in Calgary, uh, I believe, on March 11th. And I covered the practice there. Um, and then I remember being at the, uh, you know, at the Calgary Marriott Bar Restaurant uh, you know, that night with a bunch of, you know, the MSG crew and, you know, a bunch of us who, who traveled together, you know, to cover the Islanders. And that's where we, we were watching on TV as the NBA was done. Right. You know? And we, we watched it unfold in front of our eyes. And, you know, we all just turned to each other and said, well, we're done. If the NBA is shutting down, there's no way the NHL is going to keep going. And the, the Islanders had a game uh, the next day against uh, the Flames. Um, they were supposed to have a morning skate. Mm -hmm. um, we got a text early in the morning. Don't come to the arena. Morning skate has been canceled. You know, TB, TBD on the game. And it was just a holding pattern. But by, you know, noon or 1 p.m. local time, you know, the, everything was off. Yeah. And it was, and then it just became a mad scramble to try and find a flight home, you know? <laughs> well, especially, yeah, you happen to be in another country, so it was even more urgent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, that's the thing. Everybody's got a story. And uh, that's the thing about this entire uh thing is that that fascinates me i was impacted like every person on earth basically which is not normal for these sorts of crises so hopefully we're in the right direction now well uh on another front um since you are mr at sports watch on twitter please give neil a follow you you won't be disappointed um that's your media handle and the NHL making some big news this week with a uh, seven-year deal 
uh, formally announced with ESPN and the ESPN streaming and ESPN partners. And what can you tell us about this deal, what it means for the NHL's overall TV package? They've been on NBC, you know, for, for a long time. Um, what, what does it mean for NBC and what does this do for the NHL? Yeah, this is a very complicated subject. So I'm going to try, I want to try to focus on what's important, you know, in TV terms, just TV. Uh, it's interesting because yeah, they haven't been, NHL has not been on ESPN since 2004. And um, so just being back on that platform and having ESPN care about putting your highlights on sports center and their debate shows and all that stuff is important. NBC to me has done right by this sport and really, um, you know, embraced the ownership of it over the last 16 years. And I think they probably are the favorite to get the other half of the TV deal. Uh, so ESPN will show the Stanley, the finals every other year and NBC or whoever else it is will do the other year. ESPN will get a conference final. So, but bottom, the, again, in TV terms, it's pretty simple. I mean, yeah, it's good to have ESPN back in the mix. And they're going to get 25 uh, uh, games a year on ESPN and or ABC, plus, like I said, half the playoffs and then half the, the finals every other year. But 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 really, I mean, to me, in sort of historic sports media terms, the, the streaming part of this is really more interesting because a huge part of this deal is putting games on ESPN Plus. And they're going to do 75 games like produced by ESPN that are um, – you know, the ESPN games, that, but they're going to be on their streaming service, but another thousand plus that are going to essentially replace NBA, you know, the, the NHL's prior, you know, out of market streaming service. So, I mean, I know there's been other important sports stuff on streams already, but the fact that one of the four major sports is, is selling this big of a chunk of its programming to a streamer, uh, you know, I find sort of an important milestone. It's TV still matters, but every day to buy streaming matters more and more. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I guess the question that I guess people of a certain age are going to ask is how much availability is there going to be to sit down and just turn on the TV like you're used to and, and find a hockey game? And how much is it going to be having to call your kids and go, how do you do the streaming thing? <laughs> the hard part about answering it, let's forget this. Let's say you don't, you don't, you choose not to subscribe to ESPN plus, or you don't want to stream or whatever. The hard part about answering what you uh, asked is that we don't know about the other components of this yet, what the other partner is going to do. So ESPN is only going to show 25 games, which is certainly less than NBC slash NBCSN has been doing. Uh, however, if, NBC comes in with the other half and they say, oh, no, we're going to have plenty of games on. Well, it's not going to be NBCSN anymore. What I'm saying is we don't yet know how much less stuff is going to be on television because only half of the partnerships been announced. Um, so that's TBD, basically. But, yeah, I mean, the, in the bigger picture, <laughs> yeah, I mean, over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, more and more stuff is going to go away from cable TV or broadcast TV. And on to uh, digital. Which is not necessarily bad. You know, you, you can get used to having your tablet or your phone and just being able to watch a game anywhere. There, there are, you know, I'm making fun of myself for being an old fuddy-duddy and not being able to figure out this stuff. But, you know, once you do get the hang of it, there, there's much more opportunities if you pay 
a few shekels here and there to, uh, to, to, to watch more hockey. Well, but it also enables you to become a cord cutter and not have a cable bundle at all, which is, of course, where this whole thing's going, which is why ESPN has to, well, not just ESPN, it's why everybody's got a streaming service now because they're planning for a life after cable TV. Um, so, yeah, this is just another, to me, this, this deal is another step in the evolution. Uh, however, um, yeah, I mean, having ESPN back in the, again, I want to give NBC credit for how they've treated the NHL, because obviously this is not going to be ESPN's number one property. Yeah. Let's, let's be honest here. Um, so I, I give credit for NBC for taking the NHL seriously for 17, 16, 17 years. And I hope they're still part of it. And I, I think they will be, but I don't, I don't know yet. Since this is an Islanders podcast, well, no, before I ask you about where the Islanders shake out uh, amongst these new TV deals, and I think we all know the answer to that based on what we've been seeing over the past two or three decades of national broadcast, but yeah. monetarily, does is, is the NHL making it, did Gary Bettman do some good deals here? And how do you think it benefits all NHL teams getting a, a, these these new TV contracts? We don't know all the numbers yet, but it's definitely way up. I mean, they were, NBC was getting a pretty good deal at 20, uh, 200, uh, let's see, 10 years at 2 billion, 200 million a year is pretty low. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely going to go up. So yeah, there should, there should be more money to go around for players, team owners, whoever. Um, so yeah, I think Bettman, he knew he was going to be in a good position for this deal more so than they were 10, 15 years ago, certainly. And again, I don't know all the numbers yet, but they're definitely up. That's for sure. You know, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but at one point, wasn't the NHL's deal with NBC just, you know, in order to get their games on TV, it was that NBC was going to cover all its costs. And then if there were any profits after that, the NHL would, would get a, a share. Yeah, yeah. It was like a time buy or a, it was, it was, yeah, it was a, it was not a normal rights thing. That's for sure. Uh, Cause the NHL just didn't have a lot of leverage at that point. Um, especially after the lockout, but yeah. Uh, yeah, now the NHL is a much healthier property uh, partly because of the endless appetite for sports content and now as gambling, sports betting becomes bigger and bigger, the, the, these sports are that much more valuable. Um, and, you know, the NHL has always had some, even though the, the raw numbers are obviously less than the other sports, their demographics in this country are better than the other sports generally in terms of income, average income and that kind of stuff, average age. So, uh, yeah, the NHL has plenty going for it, even though they're, they're obviously not the NFL. I, I asked this question, you know, they say in journalism, you, you should know the answer to your question before <laughs> you those lawyers who are supposed to know the answer to the question. Are you going to ask me about whether these guys are going to actually show Islanders games? Well, yeah. All else being equal, the Rangers and Bruins and uh, Blackhawks and Red Wings are going to be on more than the Islanders. But, you know, we, we've seen uh, an uptick in Islanders visibility on on national TV because they're so good now. Uh, but no, yeah, it's, it's just not, you know, I think Islanders fans know this, but yeah, all else being equal, ESPN is going to show the Rangers before the Islanders. But as long as the Islanders keep being relevant and good and have a little star power, maybe Barzell's starting to become nationally known, I don't know, um, then yeah, they'll get their slice of the pie. And of course, if you go to the Stanley Cup final, they have no choice but to show you. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a very good point. I mean, I, I think, 
you know, Islander fans keep hitting me up and I'm sure it's the same with you. It's like, you know, would the Islanders ever be considered for one of these national, you know, marquee events like an outdoor game? And, you know, we saw the Islanders play outdoor at Yankee Stadium, but that was against the Rangers and, and the Rangers were clearly the, uh, the TV draw there. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing because, but, you know, branding is a weird thing because, you know, there's no logical reason that people in Toledo would rather see the Rangers than the Islanders. Um, but, you know, brands are brands and they're a very intangible thing. And, but, you know, look at the Nets who had, you know, zero interest nationally. And now they're leading sports center half the time. So, you know, there are ways of becoming, um, of breaking through that barrier. It's just harder. And the right. Nets had to go to an, ex- an extreme to make it happen. But they're obviously a bigger story nationally than the Knicks now. So, yeah, why couldn't that happen with the Islanders? Right. So if the Islanders bring in Connor McDavid well, and Austin yeah. Matthews. <laughs> right, exactly. It's not, 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 not hard. Yeah. No, but no I, I think your point about Matthew Barzelli is, is a good one, though, because, I mean, we all saw that goal he scored against the Sabres on Saturday, right? I Which mean, was number one on Sportsnet's top, Sportsnet's top 10 list. <laughs> yeah, and there's no reason why the Islanders or, you know, should not be able to translate viral moments like that into more marketing and branding interest in their franchise with this guy on the team. Yeah, I mean, again, logically, that is correct. Um, historically, that has not been the case. But that doesn't mean it can't change. I mean, the Devils did win three Stanley Cups without it having a major impact on their national brand, really. That's I mean, true. Yeah, a little bit, but but not what you would expect from three Stanley Cups. On the other hand, I would I would say, since I'm old enough to remember the early 80s, uh, those Islanders teams kind of did break through and have, a, you know, a North American-wide brand for a while there. So, you know, again, it can be done. And I guess the other element to this, when you talk about whether the Islanders can break out in, in, in any way to be more of a national entity is they also have a new arena to sell. And is that, I mean, I know what NBC and the networks, you could hear the grumbling from the technicians whenever they'd have to come into Nassau Coliseum to try and wire that for a national broadcast. They're, they're, the, the technicians were miserable because the building was so old. There's no space, you're, you're laying wire, literally. I, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. There were literally TV wires going over my lap in that press <laughs> box, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the new arena will be more user-friendly, we assume. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, also that's, I would think that, you know, just like, you know, baseball, whenever there's a new arena, you know, the league wants to sell that new arena. I mean, just look at how many Chargers and Rams games were on this season yeah. with, that, with that just palace out in uh, Southern California. I would think the NHL would want to show off UBS arena. Yeah, the other thing is, um, you know, again, I, this is just off the top of my head, but it's possible ESPN will be less sensitive to the nuances of you know, the ratings of these games in NBC was because NBC was relying so much on the NHL and, you know, ESPN, it's just, again, it's just, it's just another property they have. And if the Islanders are good, you know, so yeah, what the heck, let's show the Islanders Penguins game tonight. So um, I think it's possible that, that the Islanders will get a, a little better shake from ESPN than NBC. 
Um, but I, I don't know. They got just keep, just keep winning. I, you just keep winning. I don't know. Well, that, that that's that's the thing, you know. Uh, you like you said, you keep winning. You 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 force your way onto TV. So, uh, well, listen, Neil. I know you're going to go talk to Mr. Bettman. So I, I appreciate you hopping on the the Island Ice podcast, and uh, hopefully we can be uh, again socially uh, distanced from each other at a media table coming up soon. It's hard being a Newsday writer and having access to Gary Bettman and not having to ask him arena questions like we've been asking him for the last 20 years. At least that's, at least that's settled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, listen, Neil, thanks for hopping on and uh, all the best to you. Thank you. And as always, great talking to Neil Best. His last name says it all. Just wonderful uh, being on the same team as him, honestly. Uh, I've known Neil for, for a long time, and I, I really appreciate the chance to, uh, you know, work at the same newspaper as him. He's, he's diligent. He's got a great sense of humor. Uh, he, he's incredibly smart, even if he'll laugh at you uh, when you say that is able to, to cover a wide range of topics uh, seamlessly and, and just fit in. So really appreciate Neil's work and, and, and the chance to chat with him. And I really appreciate you for sending in some questions as we go to Andrew's Answers. It's time for your questions with Andrew's Answers. John Pisano says... My question is, are there any additions that Lou Lamarillo is looking to add with the type cap restraints, or is it next to a, next to impossible depending on who they get rid of? Thanks. And uh, as I said at the top of the show, the NHL trade deadline coming up on April 12th, and this kind of talk and these kind of questions will certainly ratchet up as we get within a month of the trade deadline. And let me start by dissecting it this way. Yes, the Islanders, you know, all things being equal, the Islanders could use some help. Could they use some help, you know, forward depth? Absolutely. You know, Oliver Wallstrom certainly seems, as we've discussed on this podcast, Oliver Wallstrom certainly seems to be the guy who can add some production on a wing. Um, in balancing out the lines, lengthening the Islanders' lineup so that the, the third line is 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 effective, you know, is a second line and a first line, and and you know that they, they they can get scoring up and down the lineup. So Oliver Wallstrom, you know, he certainly seems to be like that. But you can always, you know, could could they, you know, is Michael Dalcall going to be the long term solution on left wing on that line, or could they improve there? Well, yeah. You know, Lou could certainly look to improve uh, at that left wing spot. Um, I, I don't think uh, he's going to tinker with his fourth line, and I don't think he's going to tinker with his first line. Um, but now you get to, you know, yes, the Islanders have tight cap restraints in that they, they don't have any cap space. So anything they bring in, they're going to have to, move some salary to get out and you know you're, you're starting to see these stories uh, of whether the islanders would consider moving anthony beauvillier um who, who's cheap he's you know relatively cheap and he's gonna 
be due a, a bigger contract and you know is he the movable guy or you know is the movable guy a, a Josh Bailey or are you keeping Josh Bailey to expose him in the expansion draft and the expansion draft and what you're going to do there is are, are things you got to think of you know is Jordan Eberle a, a candidate to be moved to, to to bring in more scoring um my sense is when when all is said and done if Lou does anything it will probably be to bolster his defense depth, which is, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, you never have enough defensemen, you know, between Sebastian Ajo and Thomas Hickey. Could either one step in? I, I You know, I, I think so, but I, I, I'm beginning to think that maybe the Islanders don't think so and they want to upgrade off of those two. Um, but you're going to have to spend to get defensemen in because... Uh, you know, uh, defense is always at a premium right around, uh, you know, the trade trade deadline. Last year, they were able to score Andy Green, Lou, Lou Lamarillo reaching into his his old devil's, you know, bag to, to bring Andy Green to, uh, to the island. Is there another move like that to be made? You know, uh, the, again, the hard part is... <laughs> is being able to move some salary. Um, You know, Andrew Ladd played his first game with Bridgeport this season uh, today on Wednesday, March 10th. I I, I don't see how you're moving Andrew Ladd's contract, which would, you know, certainly free up space. You know, can you move a Leo Komarov? That may be a little bit more doable, but also, you know, at $3 I don't know who's, who's taking on Leo either. It's going to be very difficult for Lou to to bring in anyone, and you know if you start saying, well, who can they bring in? I mean, you know, the Devils may move on from Kyle Palmieri, and I think he would be a wonderful fit for the Islanders. I really do. You know, he could even slot in on that third line, and you know, really give the Islanders some depth there. But uh, again, I I just don't know how Lou pulls this off with zero cap space. And who he's going to, uh, uh, who he's going to uh, be able to move, if anyone. So you know, I I, I would look to defense before the forwards uh, between the two groups. I, I think that's where Lou would look to add first because I I don't know. You know, they've gotten through twenty six games already with the same six defensemen, and the odds of getting through fifty six games with just six defensemen seem pretty, pretty slim there. And uh, Michael Tricarico, whose last name I'm getting uh, pretty comfortable saying here, um, Andrew, now that we are almost at the halfway point of the season, how do you see the Eastern divisions shaking out? Right now, the Sabres and Devils seem to be out of it, and the Rangers will really need a strong run to get back into the playoff picture. So that leaves five or six pretty good teams vying for the four spots. Who gets left out? And hopefully it's not the Islanders. Well, uh, uh, Mike T, I've been saying, you know, I was asked, I think before the season or right at the start of the season uh, on a separate podcast who my four teams were. And I brought that, you know, prediction onto this podcast. But I've been saying from the beginning, I think the four playoff teams out of the East are the Flyers, the Capitals, um, the Islanders, 
the Flyers, Capitals, Islanders, and who am I? And the Bruins. I'm sorry. Jeez, just my brain shut off there. Yeah. Nope. Bruins, Islanders, Caps, are fl- and Flyers are the four I am picking. Um, I, I, I'm, I've been pretty solid with that all season. I, I think the Penguins are kind of the fifth team there. Um, I, I think at the end, it's it really is going to be five teams vying for the, the four spots. I, I sort of feel like the Rangers still a year away. They're just not consistent enough. Igor Shosturkin, if he's not in net and, you know, and, and I, I say this, you know, with all the love in the world for Keith Kincaid, uh, you know, Long Island guy who I got to know covering the Devils, and, and I want to see him do as well as possible. But, you know, we all know that Shesterkin is option one and maybe 1A uh, for, the, for the Rangers' long-term health. And, uh, you know, if he's not able to play a lot, you know, it, it, it may be really tough for that franchise. And, you know, I, I just, you know, I get to see a few Ranger games here and there when they're not playing on the same nights as the Islanders. And uh, I, you know, I just don't see the consistency. And, you know, the one difference I see with them and the the Islanders, and Barry talks about this all the time, is the Islanders are comfortable in these uncomfortable situations. So they're down by a goal in the third period, or they've given up a goal in the third period. They don't get rattled. And I'm talking about the Islanders. You know, they're they're used to playing these one-goal nail-biter games, and and that's a skill. And I don't think the Rangers are there yet. They just, you know, they're not comfortable in those situations. And and until they can be comfortable in those situations, they're not a playoff team. So I think the Penguins join the five teams that I mentioned as really true playoff contenders with, with the Penguins. It's, it's going to be all about if they get the goaltending or not. You know, Tristan Jerry had a, a good night against the Rangers the other night, but it hasn't been that consistent in net for the Penguins between Jerry and uh, Casey DeSmith. So uh, that, that's why I like the Islanders certainly over the Penguins because I, I think the Semyon Varlamov and Ilya Sorokin are, you know, they're both better than either of the, the Penguins goalies. Um, Joe Hunsberger uh, says, what is the overarching reason the Islanders have had success against the Bruins lately? And, and the Islanders... Um, are 4-0 against the Bruins. The Bruins are uh, 0-3-1 against the Islanders. But four wins for the Islanders, all four games at the Coliseum. So, you know, the Islanders still have to go to Boston four times. And so that'll be a little tricky. Um, The reason for the overarching success, and, and each game has been different in ways and, and it's been weird because each game has been tied going into the third period and you know uh you know they win in a shootout uh you know they play a very good period the islanders do on tuesday they get it to a oh to an overtime and then a shootout they win that way uh previous game which uh ex-islander goalie yarrow halak was also in net four for the bruins uh, they enter the third period 2-2, and then, bang, Islanders score five goals, break that one open. Uh, there was a 4-2 win um, prior to that, um, where the it's 2-2 going into the third period, and you get a, a power play goal from Matt Barzell, I believe, and then a shorthanded goal from Jean-Gabriel Pajot. 
So special teams makes the difference there. And then in the, in the first game, uh, which was the third game of the season for the Islanders, it, it's a one nothing win. And Gigi Pajot scores the winner, uh, what was it, at like 15-18, if I'm remembering correctly, of the third period. So that one, that's a 0-0 game, you know. And honestly, you know, it seemed like all of these games going into the third period could have gone either way. And what, what I'm seeing, the overarching reasons, is one... Islanders have had the better goaltending in each of the four games. And uh, look, there was nothing wrong with Yarrow Halak last night. It was just that Semyon Varlamov came up with the one bigger save. He he went to 11 last night, where, whereas Halak stayed at 10. Um, uh, and, 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 and Varley admitted it was, a, it was basically a lucky save. But I, I'm talking about... Midway through the second period, it's uh, was it still one nothing Bruins at that time, and the Bruins are on a power play uh, with with Oliver Wallstrom in the box for you know a boarding penalty that I I don't necessarily think he committed, um, and Krejci the puck comes to David Krejci uh, off to uh, Varley's right, and it's a goal. I mean Krejci is staring at an open net. Varley admitted he was out of position on it. Um, and, and somehow Varley just kind of reaches back and extends his stick in the air and bang, makes the save. And and it's it literally is a it's a turning point save. The the Islanders wind up coming back with a uh, a late second period goal by Brock Nelson uh, on the power play. Uh, and then, you know, good third period for both teams, decent overtime for both teams, and you get to a shootout, which is an arbitrary skills competition, but the Islanders get the two points, so no one wants me to get up on my soapbox about how much I hate shootouts there. Although, you know, in an aside, you know, obviously I'm of an age where I, I still remember ties in the NHL, and I was never opposed to ties in the NHL. I really wasn't. Um, I just, you know, I, I always feel like if you start a game, any game, any sport, if you start a game a certain way, you got to finish it that way, which is which is why in baseball, I hate now in extra innings that there's a runner on second base to start. It's not the way you start the game, you know, and I understand the reasons for it and you know, and you know, for TV and the NHL, they don't want these never-ending overtimes like you sometimes get in the playoffs. And I get that you you can't wear down your players. Certainly not this season where you're paying playing fifty-six games in what seems like oh fifty-six days, where there's a game every day. It seems like so. I, I get why you limit overtime to uh, to to five minutes. You know, I, I guess in in my best case scenario, you eliminate the shootout. Maybe you play seven minutes of overtime. Maybe you play ten minutes of overtime. Uh, you settle it that way. I'm, you know, people have 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 taken to three on three play, so I'll give up the ghost there. Um, but you know, again, I 
you know, in my perfect world. That's why I love the playoffs so much because you got overtime and it's period number four and it's it's the best hockey you can possibly see. I know you can't get that on a nightly basis in the regular season, but you know what? After, you know, seven minutes of overtime, if you don't have a winner, you don't have a winner. I am I am not opposed to ties whatsoever when it comes to the NHL. And, you know, I know I went off on a tangent there, so I'm, I'm sorry about Joe, uh, about that, Joe, but I hope I answered your question. And uh, the last one comes to us from... Uh, our friend George uh, Baldacino, uh, who asks in a rather long paragraph, I would like to hear your thoughts on Jake Pavanka. Uh, now, Jake Pavanka, who is 21 and at Notre Dame, was a fourth-round pick in 2018. Uh, I would like you to hear your thoughts on Pavanka um, because uh, George believes, you know, George's uh, scouting report on Jake is he's a center with a high faceoff percentage, NHL bloodlines with ties to trots. His father was Michael Pavanka, um, you know, big boy. And, and George thinks, you know, since he was drafted, he has a chance to be a successor to Casey Sezikis, who, by the way, you know, is due a contract after this season. So my, we'll start with my thoughts on Pavanka. Now, the, the scouting reports, and I'll admit, you know, I have not seen any Notre Dame games. You know, these are scouting reports I read. He's known more for his defensive work, but he's a decent skater. Uh, you know, his offensive skills certainly have not blossomed, uh, if they will. He's got two goals and six assists in his first 28 games for Notre Dame uh, this season. Um, certainly, you know, being the son of a former NHLer helps. You're acclimated to what is expected uh, a little bit quicker, you know, and Again, he's he's known as a very responsible player, and the, and yeah, that does sound like Casey Sezikis. He's bigger than Casey, um, but at twenty one, you know, I would still, you know, I would still think Jake at best is, you know, you got to get him into the organization. You probably got to get him a year at Bridgeport at least. So I I don't think he's you know next up for Casey Sezikis. Um, but yeah, he, he definitely projects more as a, a bottom six forward. And, you know, I, I think there's, again, having not seen any of his games, just reading the scouting reports, knowing his bloodlines, I would think there is some, you know, prospects for him being able to make an impact in the organization down the road. But uh, we're, we're certainly not there yet. Um, uh, George also wants to know who I would prefer in a trade. You know, again, as I mentioned in the earlier earlier answer, it's all about who who they can, you know, trade away to see how much space there is to bring in. If they had a chance to add Kyle Palmieri's salary uh, as a rental, I would be all for that. I think Kyle would slip in both personality-wise and, and playing-wise, I think he would slip in perfectly within this group. George also says before they make a trade, he'd really prefer the Islanders give Ross Johnson uh, and Kiefer Bellows every opportunity to claim it. And you know what, George? I, I think the Islanders have certainly given both those guys chances. So, you know, 
I don't think you can say the Islanders are, are, are holding those two down. Um, you know, Kiefer is kind of a, a different uh, uh, a different case just because he's so much younger and, uh, you know, a highly rated prospect. Kiefer, you know, Kiefer will get a chance again at, at some point. He's got to prove it through his uh, practice practice work. But, you know, this season, next season, Kiefer Bellows is going to get another chance in the NHL. Um, and finally, and we'll end uh, this episode of of Andrew's Answers and Island Ice here, uh, what are my thoughts on... The Clash's Topper Hedden as a drummer. And yeah, could not say enough good things about Topper. Um, look, I, I know everyone, you think of The Clash and, you know, it's Joe Joe Strummer and, and that, you know, magnificent voice of his and, you know, his magnificent attitude and, and, and the songs he wrote and Mick Jones you know, and his different voice and the songs he wrote, you know, a little more melodic, uh, if you will. So you think of those two guys first when you think of The Clash. But, you know, probably because, you know, I own a drum set, which, by the way, is different from being a drummer. You know, I, I don't want anyone to think, you know, I do play drums. I don't feel like I'm a drummer. You know, there there are nuances and and real techniques that I have not mastered uh, through all this time. But, you know, I definitely, when I listen to a song, the first thing I hear is the drums. And, you know, for what started as a punk band, and let's face it, there were a lot of punk bands, both in the U.S. and England, you know, mid to late 70s, where, where guys were, were just very rudimentary on their instruments. They were barely able to play their instruments. And some of these bands, even some of these bands that made it, um, it was more about the attitude and the noise that was made than the technique. And, and Topper, to me, could have drummed in any band, in almost any genre. He, he's got a very jazz-like feel to me. Um, his, his drumming skips. It carries the music. He doesn't drum in a very complicated way. But it's always within the framework of the song. He's always throwing in that one little thing where you go, wow, that's a really nice, you know, little accent there. Or, you know, that's a really nice little splash there. Or, you know, I, I like that drum fill. You know, he, you know, even in a song like Should I Stay or Should I Go, you know, that, that kind of really neat tom-tom beat he gets going. Um, you know, on the chorus, it, it really adds something different. And then when you hear different drummers uh, drum live for The Clash, you know, nothing against Terry Chimes, who is a, is a fine drummer. He was The Clash's original drummer on the first album. And, you know, he also went on to drum for Black Sabbath. So Terry Chimes can play the drums, um, but he can't play it like Topper did. And, and you listen to some live recordings that Clash did after Topper left the band and it, it's much more of a thudding uh, the, the, there's no skip to the music and I think that was very important to the Clash so uh, there's my music lesson for today and there is episode 74 of Island Ice and again uh, I'm Andrew Gross and please try and give me a follow on Twitter at A Gross Newsday if you liked what Neil had to say or if you'd like to hear what Neil has to say please give him a follow on Twitter at at Sportswatch 
And if you would like to communicate more with me one-on-one, please, please, please try out Newsday Islanders Text. You can text 631-303-3766. That's 631-303-3766. You can go to newsday.com backslash Isles Text to start your 14-day trial subscription. And again, anything I produce or say or video or, you know, any Islanders content, please newsday.com backslash Isles for all of that. And until we talk again, happy hockey, everybody.